All right, if you'll turn your bulletins uh, to page eight, and we'll be looking uh, at Acts again this week. <clears throat> Let me pray. Uh, Father in heaven, Lord, I pray uh, you would help me. Uh, Lord, I, I uh, very much feel like the disciples. Lord, I'm coming back with two fish and five loaves of bread, and it's not nearly enough uh, to feed the masses. And uh, Lord, so I bring to you my crumbs and ask you to do something with it. And uh, Lord, we know that it's your power uh, that changes us. So Lord, would you... Um, would you give me that power even now? And Lord, I pray you'd give uh, your power to he these people or that you would um, embolden them for the gospel or that you would uh, convict of sin or that you would confirm your love in them during these moments. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, I don't know uh, about you, but I love being nostalgic. Uh, this summer, uh, early August, Jen and I went uh, to Florence, Kentucky, Northern Kentucky, our hometown, and um, kind of a long story, my aunt's got a condo there. She lives in Florida, and so when she retired, she decided to buy a place in Kentucky instead of what we do, you know? So the place sits empty almost all the time, and so it's kind of a free place to stay. And uh, so we went up there, stayed the night. Uh, we went to kind of our old neighborhood, and I went for a run. And uh, during that run, I mean, it was unbelievable the kinds of things that came like screaming back at me from my past. I mean, things like my lunchbox. I just thought about the lunchbox I had from probably the time I was in the second grade until I was in seventh grade. This big igloo thing that I took to school every day. Uh, I started thinking about uh, the Swifty, the uh, gas station I went to all the time. I remember it got down to 62 cents a gallon uh, when I was 16. I couldn't believe it. Uh, I started having smells of things that I was used to, like driving my bike past these places. And man, I smelled things that I've always been smelling in that exact spot. It's kind of like being here. Uh, I, when I walk through here, I just think of uh, my grandparents in their church. Because uh, it smells like that. And, um, but that, that's nostalgia for you. And I, and, and I don't think it's just like something that is kind of an obsession with me. I think uh, it's going on in our culture at the moment. It really is a cultural phenomenon, this whole thing of nostalgia. I mean, think about Chris, ugly Christmas sweaters. You used to have to dig at Goodwill and Salvation Army for these things. Now you can buy one at Walmart. It's unbelievable. Uh, this summer, uh, you didn't know, know this, but I, I really love tennis shoes or uh, basketball shoes. And um, I, the, Nike came out with these self-lacing shoes. I mean, they're unbelievable. And no one ever talked about them because Nike also re-released shoes that were from the mid-80s. And those got a lot more press than these high-technology self-lacing shoes. It's crazy. Uh, you think about uh, high-waisted pants. Uh, nostalgic for sure. Uh, striped Gap shirts. All of a sudden, nostalgia has come into fashion. Uh, but why is this the case? Uh, why do things like Stranger Things that are set in the 80s, why do they garner such a huge following? Why is our heart's obsession and our culture's obsession with nostalgia, where does that come from? Well, here's what I think. Uh, we long for any other time except right now. I think that's why we're obsessed. So we long for any other time except right now. We're bombarded with bad news. We've become skeptical that our future is going to be all that bright. 
So what we want is, is comfort. We want hope. We want some answers. And so when we want hope and we want answers and we want comfort, we just dive into this rabbit hole of nostalgia to give us some relief and give us some assurance that things are going to be okay. But what we tend to do in nostalgia is that we unconsciously forget the negative aspects of that bygone era. For instance, if I wanted to go back to my childhood, I have to go back to cassette tapes where I've got to rewind and fast forward to find the song I want. How inconvenient. Uh, I'd have to watch a whole episode of Sports Center to find the one game that I actually cared about the score to. I'd have to have a newspaper to check the scores of the games that I cared about. But even that, even if I didn't want to go back to those things, I don't want to go back to some of the things I experienced in the first 18 years of my life. There are some really hard things that I really don't want to transport back to. But I forgot all that on that run. So what's the answer? Well, whether you're a nostalgic nut or you're a future-oriented fanatic, what we're looking for is something real, something solid. I think what we're looking for is heaven. See, Jesus taught us to pray. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what Jesus is really saying here is that we should not look to transport ourselves back to a bygone era. We should even look to transport ourselves back to heaven. But what he's teaching us to do is to pray and to ask him to bring heaven to earth. And that's what we find in our passage. That's what we see in Acts chapter 4, is that we find heaven has come to earth, and we see an era where the church was great. Let's read this passage together. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Uh, The word of the Lord. All right, so what, you, what we find in this passage is, uh, first of all, I included verse 31 uh, into this passage. If you look in your Bibles, it's separated. And if you were here last week, you know that verse 31 was the last verse uh, that was in our text last week. But I included it because in, in verse 31, look at it with me, uh, it says about halfway through, it says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So if a whole community is filled with the Holy Spirit, what is that going to look like? Well, what it looks like is verses 32 through 35. And what we see in 32 through 35 are four things that made, this, made the church great. We see a great unity in verse 32, the first half of it. We see great care in the second half of verse 32 and then verses 34 and 35. We see great power in the first part of 33. And then we see great grace in the second part of 33. All right, so I know it's kind of all over the place, but that's how it broke down. Uh, Great unity, verse 32, that's the first thing. It's the first thing mentioned. It says, now the full number, you see it? Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Think about it for a minute. It's really quite shocking that this could be possible. 
Uh, this is an upstart movement. This is a brand new thing in the, where the church has grown so rapidly. And usually when a movement like this grows so fast, what happens is that disparate opinions arise, uh, that strong leaderships, uh, strong leaders with different visions, they arise. And what happens with these opinions and these leaders with these visions, it really fractures the community. It divides it. But not here. This isn't what happens with the early Christians. What happens with the early Christians is that they are one in heart and in soul. One in heart and soul. I mean, there's a depth to that. That means that there's a whole lot more going on here than that they're in the same uh, life stage. It's not a demographic thing that binds them together. What binds them together is not a common interest, like some groups that we're a part of. No, 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 it's something much greater. In fact, it's someone much greater. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the reason for their unity. There's a great illustration of Christian unity. It's given by one of my all-time faves, uh, A.W. Tozer. Uh, the guy died in 63. I'd recommend uh, pretty much anything he has. But here's what he said about Christian unity. This is really good. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which one must individually bow. So, take a hundred worshipers. They meet together. Each, of, each one looks away to Christ. They are nearer in heart and to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship, end quote. You see what he's saying? He's saying that if unity is your goal, that you're not going to have it. But if your goal is Jesus, then you're going to find unity with other Christians. And again, verse 32 says this at a heart and soul level. It's a deep thing. But what exactly does it look like? What does this kind of unity look like? Well, it doesn't look like uniformity. Uniformity demands no disagreements. Uniformity makes everything inessential. But unity, on the other hand, it allows for differences. After all, think about the Christians who are there. Yes, they are all Jews at this point in Acts chapter 4. But these Jews are from a million different, a million different cultures. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, you will see that uh, the people who were converted were made up of uh, people from Mesopotamia, people from Judea, people from Cappadocia, people from Asia, Egypt, Libya, which is in Africa, Rome, Italy, Crete, that little island in the middle of Mediterranean, Mediterranean, and Arabia. In other words, like Saudi Arabia. That's where these Jews were from. They were from all over the place. So they weren't uniform. And we know that among them that there were men and that there were women and that there were children. So uniformity was not something that they achieved, but unity was. Now, you know the import for you and I on this, don't you? The import for us is that we've got to gather around this person of Jesus. We have to gather around his mission. And when we do, we will be unified. But in order for that to happen, we're going to have to let all of our differences fall to the wayside. Because what's going to happen around here is that things are going to come up in the life of our church that you're going to disagree with. 
But just because you disagree with it or I disagree with it doesn't mean that it has to divide us. So maybe something changes our order of service. Or are you going to let it cause a division? Maybe something happens with the nursery or with the children's ministry. Are you going to let it cause a division? Maybe a, a critical kind of uh, a, a critical care situation comes up and you don't think the church handled it very well. Are you going to let it divide us? See, what Satan would love to do is distract our attention from the main thing or the main person, Jesus, onto peripheral things so that we might not be united. But this Christian unity, it's possible. And not only is it possible, but it's beautiful and sweet and satisfying. The next thing that we see is not just great unity, but we see great care. You see the great care? This is kind of the overwhelming thing. This is, uh, kind of fits in with uh, our Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy 15. But this was a, a group of people that, yeah, they had this great unity, but they also had this great care for one another. This care was this sharing of, uh, of material possessions. And this was totally countercultural. See, in, in their culture, uh, the way this worked is that you would share things with people who were like you. You shared within your social class, and, and, you, and when you would share, there was an expectation that they would share in return. So it's almost like a payment. It was recipro- their reciprocity was involved. But if someone was above you in a social class, they would not be your friend. They would not give you anything because you had nothing to give them in return. If someone was below you, you wouldn't give to them because they didn't have anything to give you in return. So this kind of community was radically different than any kind of community that was a part of first century Judaism. Now, I don't know, there's a million ways for a church to be a caring church. But the one that our text addresses today is really highlighting those who had means within the community. Those who had money. Those who had money saw themselves as they had a particular kind of responsibility in life, the community that maybe other people didn't. Now, I'm not saying that the poor or that the middle income, that they didn't give. I'm just saying that those with resources saw it as their particular gift to the church, that they were willing to sell their property for people who needed it. It's a beautiful thing, and it's really happened around here a bunch. I mean, just in the last few years, I mean, these are just a few, but there was a, a single parent, and they found themselves in a really bad situation. The church came around them, uh, raised some money for them, and got them a new residence, outfitted the new residence. Another church member uh, passed away, couldn't cover the funeral bill, so we did. We've had numerous people need counseling, and they got help from other people in the church to help pay for their counseling. We had someone recently who was really falling on some hard times and their neighborhood group took up a collection for them and helped them bridge the gap for the next couple weeks. It's so encouraging. But I hope it happens a lot more around here. I say that not because I've seen the need for it and it didn't happen. I hope it happens because God brings us more people who are disadvantaged and so that we can become a group of people who are glad to meet their need. And you know what the result of this kind of generous, caring community would be? Jesus tells us in John 13, verses 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, 
all people will know that you are my disciples. Let me say it again. By this, all people will know that you are my, my disciples if you have love for one another. Say it's this kind of care. It preaches. It's something the world can understand. It's tangible. They can ask questions about it. And it might just be the impetus for a newfound faith. It's great care. Sure, some of this is that what the church was doing, yes, was repulsive to some, and the church was persecuted. But to others, it was attractive and magnetic, and it drew people in. Great care. Then we see great power. Look at the first half of verse 33. It says, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Look at the manner of their preaching. You see what it was? It was powerful. Powerful. Powerful preaching. It's interesting. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he gave a lecture on preaching. He was a famous preacher uh, in Britain, the first half of the the 20th century. And he said this about, uh, about preaching. He said, I can forgive a man a bad sermon. I can forgive the preacher almost anything as long as he gives me a sense of God. If he gives me something for my soul, if he gives me the sense that though he is inadequate in himself, he is handling something which is very great and glorious. If he gives me some dim glimpse of the majesty and glory of God, the love of Christ my Savior, and the magnificence of the gospel, if he does that, I am his debtor, and I am profoundly grateful for him. Powerful preaching. Notice what power wasn't. Power wasn't a bunch of conversions. Power wasn't necessarily screaming the whole time. Power wasn't the ability to hold someone's attention for an hour. Power was something that was hard to put your finger on. Is this what you look for in a sermon? Do you look for the preacher to give you a sense of the majesty and glory of God? Do you, do you look for him taking seriously and addressing the weightiest of all subjects? Or maybe you're not. Maybe instead in a sermon you're looking for a helpful tip for life. Maybe you're looking for a funny story, a pick-me-up. We should be looking for power. So the manner was powerful, but you know what else was powerful was the content. Do you see the content? What did they say? Do you see it? They, what they said was that they were giving testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Well, of course, that's powerful. I mean, they're talking about the most powerful event in the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus. Powerful. So the manner was powerful. The content was powerful. But look at the word that they use, testimony. Testimony. Can I break something to you here? If you're a Christian... You have a testimony of the risen Christ in your life. You don't need a theological education to be able to have a testimony. You don't have to be a good public speaker in order to have a testimony. You just have to be able to say, Jesus Christ rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. And at some point in my life, Jesus rose me from the dead. I'm giving testimony to that right here. And in response to that, I repented and I believed. And you can too. If you repent and believe, you'll be a part of this grand story with me. 
See, that's a testimony. That's something that we're not just all capable of. It's, all something, it's also something that we're called to. Testimony. It doesn't say sermon. It doesn't say oration. It says testimony. And we all have one for a Christian. Great power. Great unity. Great care. And the last one, you see it. Great grace. Second half of verse 33. It says, and great grace was upon them all. I love that it says all, don't you? If it just said, and great grace was upon the apostles, it'd be kind of a letdown, wouldn't it? She'd be like, well, I'm not Peter. I'm not an apostle. I guess I can't enjoy great grace. But it says, great grace was upon them all. What does that look like? For them to have great grace upon them, does that mean that they levitated like six inches off the ground? Does it mean they held hands and sang kumbaya? Does it mean that they had no problems and no needs? Not at all. It looks very different. I think a great picture of what it's like to have great grace upon you is a story found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, you'll find a story about a guy named Mephibosheth. You've probably never heard of him. I, I barely heard of him. But Mephibosheth, uh, it's, it's a fascinating story. And Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. And Jonathan's best friend was David. And David was king. The king before David was Saul. So you've got Saul, grandpa. He's the grandpa here. You've got uh, Jonathan is the dad. And you've got Mephibosheth as the grandson. Do you, see, do you see the family tree here? All right. David is over here and he's an equal with Jonathan, but not in their family. Well, Saul uh, was the first king of Israel. David was the second. Jonathan died while they were, these two were really good friends. There's a great adversity. Jonathan ended up dying. And now David's on the throne. And when he's on the throne, he's sitting around one day thinking all these fond thoughts about his dear friend, Jonathan, who's now deceased. And he goes to one of his servants and he says, hey, is there anybody left in Jonathan's family, anybody in his line? that I can show the kindness of God to. And the servant says, I, I don't know, let me check it out for you. He comes back and he says, yeah, there's one. Jonathan has one son that's left and his name's Mephibosheth, but he's crippled in both feet. Now I'll give you a little background here. If, uh, you were from a new, if, if you were a new royal line, you made sure that you extinguished the previous royal line because the previous royal line has some serious street cred, you know? I mean, they're used to that family being in a position of power. And if the citizens are used to this, uh, the, the, the previous line being in a position of power, then maybe they could gather a group of people around them and cause a coup to happen to this new royal line. And so David goes, David says, hey, I want you to tell Mephibosheth to come here. Now imagine being Mephibosheth, he, he's, he's probably afraid, oh gosh, the, 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 the guillotine's finally going to fall on me. They're finally found out what my last name is. They finally found out who I'm related to. It's coming for me. When he gets in there, what David sees in Mephibosheth is not a traitor, a potential traitor. What he sees is uh, not someone who's crippled. And by the way, to be, be crippled now, I know, is a, a huge disadvantage. But to be crippled uh, in, in, in the ancient Near East, uh, they would put you pretty much in a commune with other crippled people. And you had to take care of each other. No services were for you. Uh, nothing was set up to help you. It was terrible. So here's this guy. He's a potential traitor. He's crippled in both feet. I mean, he's an inconvenience at best. 
And what he thinks David will tell him is a complete opposite of what David actually does tell him. Here's what David says. Do not fear. He says, do not fear. You know he could see it in his eyes. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. So he comes in thinking he's going to die. And he leaves with an inheritance. And he leaves with an invitation to David's table all the days of his life. This crippled enemy of the king now becomes a son of the king. Friends, that's grace. And there was a time for you and for me when we were an enemy of God. At one time, the curse of God was on us because of our sin. There was a time when you were wandering through life. You had no chance of being with Jesus. And then one day you got the word. You got invited to come sit with Jesus. And at first you thought, he's going to smite me. I'm way too bad for him. But then you hear words of grace. And he says, I love you. You're my daughter. You're my son through adoption. I've had this plan all along to redeem you from a life of slavery. I'm going to restore what's been broken. I'm going to give you eternal life. I'm going to give you gifts to use in my world. I'm going to put you in a family called the church. Grace has come upon you. See, Jesus lived and he died and he rose again so that he might speak those words to you. This is great grace. It's upon you. It's upon us. And it's this grace, when renewed on a moment-by-moment basis, will make us like heaven on earth around here. Or we'll be a community of great care, of great unity, and great power. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see our real condition, uh, that we uh, were traitors of you, we were your enemy, or that we were at best an inconvenience, or we had our, your curses upon us, but Lord, you've given us more uh, than we could ever imagine. Uh, So Lord, I pray you'd expand our imagination to see the glories of your grace and your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen.